Thank you for joining us for Sermons on Demand from Friendship Grace Brethren Church. We provide these videos as a way to share the pulpit messages and teachings offered at Friendship Grace Brethren Church. If you find these videos a helpful resource, please drop us a note at info at friendshipgracebrethren.com. Now open your Bibles and get ready to dig into the Word of God. Okay, any questions? I'm going to cover um, covenants here in a little bit. Any other questions? Okay, then let's go on. The first question is, how many covenants are there? That's a question that can't be answered simply because it, there's not enough in the question. How many covenants between God and Israel? How many covenants between Israel and others? How many covenants between kings? Exactly what is the question? I suspect that the question is how many covenants between God and Israel? But we have to look at those a little bit more carefully. So I uh, put some uh, notes together for you and sent it out with the, uh, with the notice tonight. So I'm not going to go over all of those. But it is, it, is, it is good to familiarize yourself with, with the covenants. There are at least 35 covenants recorded in the Old Testament. Um, covenants such as a covenant God makes with Adam. That's, uh, that's pretty well known, the Adamic covenant or the Noahic. But then there's covenants that, Adam, that Abraham makes with people around him. Those are contracts. Those are treaties. Um, then God makes a covenant with Abraham, and I have in the notes uh, times three, because it's, it's articulated in three different places, three different ways. Um, and then there's uh, covenants with Isaac and, uh, and with Jacob, basically a restatement of the Abrahamic covenant, where God is saying to, to both Isaac and Jacob, here's what I promised your dad or your granddad, and here's what I'm promising you. And uh, then there are covenants that uh, God makes with Israel at uh, Mount Sinai. And then a separate covenant that God made with Aaron, the Aaronic covenant, which establishes the priesthood. And uh, then there is a renewal of the covenant at Sinai. And then covenant with several others, including uh, um, Phineas and... Uh, Joshua renews the covenant that is made between uh, God and the Israelites. And uh, then there's several covenants that go on in David's time. Jonathan makes a covenant with David. Uh, Jonathan makes a covenant with David in a different location. Abner makes a covenant uh, with David. And so you have uh, lots of contracts. You have lots of times that treaties are, are made. And then there's the Davidic covenant. And then uh, there's a continuing of a whole bunch of covenants between kings and uh, other countries and other rulers. And then uh, we have the uh, we have some covenants between Nebuchadnezzar and and others. And then we have the the, the last covenant, really, the new covenant that uh, God makes with Israel and with Judah. And so in, in the notes that I've sent you, you, you have a breakdown of those, of those primary covenants with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, Aaron, Phineas, David, and uh, the New Covenant. Those are important for us to get an understanding of how God establishes a relationship. Some, are, uh, are, some covenants are um, 
they have a response required and a failure to respond, then uh, then something else happens. If if you do right, you'll be blessed. If you don't do right, if you disobey, you'll be cursed. And so those uh, those covenants are are important to see how God does that because it gives us an understanding of the principle behind God and His uh, deal making with the with the people that He's chosen. And I'm not going to go through all of the data. I, I, I sent it to you. I cut and paste from several resources for you there so you could uh, see exactly how they're talked about in some of the, the, uh, the journals and uh, um, some of the commentaries. So, um, Sybil, do you have a precise question that you would like to ask that well, I didn't cover with that? It started with, yeah, next week, Monday. The title of our lesson is Listening to the God of the Covenant. And then, and I, I only had the academic, the Abrahamic, the Palestinian, Mosaic, the Bidding, and New. I only had the basic understanding of the covenant because that was never very important. First you need to get them saved, then you need to teach them what they ought to believe, and covenants are way back in teaching. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, un I understand that. Um, where it becomes important is because the covenants that God makes with, with the, the various people it gives us an insight into God's heart, what He's what He's promising to do, and what He's threatening to do if 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 it's a a uh, um, conditional covenant, what He threatens to do if you don't keep your the conditions. Some were not conditional. Some were I'm just going to bless you, or I'm just going to do this. Others were I'm going to curse you if you don't do what I say. The the what's often referred to as the Palestinian covenant is is exactly like that. If you do what I say, you get to stay in the land, and I'm going to bless you, and you're going to have lots and lots of of wealth and success. But if you don't obey, I'm going to remove you from the land. And and he was long suffering in that. He didn't he didn't kick them out of the land as soon as they disobeyed, because they would have been out of the land forever uh, with only a couple of days in the land. But it, it re, the covenants reflect his heart as he talks to them and as he sets the contract up with them. For it, us, it, the Abrahamic was the most important because we have, we have seen, seen those that hurt the Jews, Jews will be blessed, will be blessed and, and those that hurt will get hurt. hurt. And it was like pulling heads to get an older person that actively went through the Nazi time to get him or her saved. No, sure. it's not sovereignty, and, and you, we don't say from anyhow. But they seem to have the curse on them. I understand what you're saying, and it certainly looks that way. But then there are a number of uh, of people that grew up in Germany at that period of time that that did become saved. Um, but it it is the same as as trying to evangelize an intellectual today. Um, they they can't they can't see their way clear to anything by faith, not recognizing that everything they do is by faith. Their faith is just misplaced. And the Abrahamic covenant is an important covenant. 
because it sets up or it, it ratifies God's plan of salvation. But the Edemic covenant and curse is also setting up salvation. And so you have, you have, you, you can't really put one ahead of the other. They're all important. Not as important as they are to those that, that treat scripture in a covenantal fashion, that God only works through covenants. I don't think that's a, a good way to view, view scripture. Um, because in order for that to be true, then the the church has has some struggle right now because we don't have any real articulated covenants to us in the same fashion that Israel did, and, and so the, the the covenantal theology is difficult to uh, to argue, and I think it requires you to do some mental gymnastics and some hermeneutic gymnastics with the text. I like to view the covenants, I like to study them or read through them because it gives me a glimpse of who God is and, and what he, how, he, how he thinks on some things and what he cares for. But I didn't, well, because the, the covenant with the church is really Jesus. And we're not a, we're, we're, indiv we're more individual than, than collective. Israel was more collective than individual. They were saved individually, but they operated collectively. And we're kind of the, the opposite. We, we're saved individually, but we, we primarily operate. You know, we don't, we don't need a priest. We don't need a priest to be our intercessor. Um, we already have the great high priest, Jesus, to be our intercessor. And, and so the, the way the covenant is viewed for the church is different theologically. Because most of these covenants have a have a collective part of them. Um, certainly, the Adamic covenant, while Adam and Eve are the only people on the earth, um, it still is collective because of his being the the federal and seminal head of of the human race. So, in Adam, we are all part of that covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant certainly is. You know, I'm going to make a people out of you. Abraham, you're gonna have a you're gonna have a son from your old your old wife, and she's that son is gonna be the progenitor of a of a great nation of people um, that are too numerous to to number, and so there's collective aspects to all of the covenants, even though some of the covenants are are individually. That makes sense. But I, I figured I'd send you a bunch of that information, so at your leisure you could uh, read that and. And uh, if you have more questions, you can uh, fire them off to me. Sybil, do you have any other questions about covenants that you no, need before next no, uh, Sunday? No, that was very, very helpful. And I will work more through them. Okay, so the answer to the question, how many covenants are there? Bunch. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, here's the next question then. Nope. Oh look, I have you I have all the covenants there for you on the on the screen, but you have it in paper in front of you. Okay, read numbers 27, 12 through 23. I'm gonna ask you to develop the principle from this passage. Because numbers is an incredibly difficult book to work through. Um, but there are principles there. So numbers 27, 12 through 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go up into this mountain of Abiram and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. 
By the way, that, that is a reference to Mount Nebo. The range was Abram. The mountain itself was Nebo. I have stood on the top of that mountain, and I had a rare clear day. I could see up to the Sea of Galilee, and I could see all across the Dead Sea into, uh, into Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Quite a fantastic place. And then Linda will tell you I got pneumonia up there. When you have seen it, you also shall be, uh, you, you all have seen it, you shall also, no, you also shall be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. Gathered to your people is a, uh, a Hebrew euphemism for uh, being dead and putting your bones in the bone box, the collective ancestral bone box. Because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin, when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as the holy waters before their eyes, these are the waters of Meribeth of Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation, who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom this is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of Urim before the Lord, and his word shall go out. And at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation. And he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. So, what's the principle in, in that passage? This is the, this is, Moses, you're going to be dead in a little bit. So, uh, appoint somebody to succeed you. And uh, God says, appoint uh, Joshua and then uh, anoint him and uh, invest him or give him the authority, some of the authority. The one principle is we have to be faithful to the very, 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 very end. Moses very good. was faithful to the end, but not the very, very end. Yeah, Moses was faithful. Except when he wasn't, right? Like all of us, right? He did exactly what the Lord told him to do, except a few times and he didn't. Like all of us. I feel bad for Moses, but God said he wouldn't get into the uh, promised land. Did he ever? Yeah. Mary, Mary's shaking her head no. Who said yes? Who, who said yes? Go ahead. Chuck said yes. I, I say yes as well. But Chuck was... Yes. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm about to There you go. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> and probably in Revelation, you will be again. Yeah, if, if the, uh, the two uh, prophets are Moses and Elijah, yeah. But that's yet future. Okay, so it's outside time, he's already done it. 
Well, he's not outside of time because God is, but he's not. He's still subject to time and space. So, very good, Sybil. You, you, you got one of the principles. Let's go with some more. Obedience is not an option. Okay. God demands it. And, and sometimes because of this disobedience, your blessing is given to others. Oh, very good. Disobedience causes your blessing to go to somebody else, okay? I'm just puzzled why God said that only some of Moses' authority would go to Joshua. That just puzzles me. Why not all? Well, go ahead, go ahead, Sybil. Because Moses spoke with God face to face. No one ever did that. Moses is very unique. He had access into the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest did, and he wasn't a high priest. He was of the same family, but he wasn't a high priest. He wasn't a priest at all. Um, he was, as Sybil said, he spoke face-to-face with God. He's unique in Israel's history as a, as a special one-off character. <laughs> character that God gave special provision to. No one since him had the authority that Moses did. So if you were to ask a Jew, a good Bible-believing Jew, they should answer Moses was the greatest of the prophets. They'll probably answer Abraham. But Moses was, I think, had a better position before God than, uh, than Abraham. And so when, when Joshua is about to take over, he doesn't get all the same privileges that Moses had. Nobody's had that since. Well, I get this, that he wouldn't have the same privileges, but the same authority is different the same privileges. Well, he has the same authority because he speaks for God when Eleazar, the priest, goes out and asks God, what's the answer? Moses did that himself. But now Joshua is going to have to ask Eleazar. Eleazar is going to have to determine the answer, give it to him, and then Joshua can speak. The other way to look at the, the wording here, Moses ain't dead yet. So he could be being instructed to give some of his authority while he's still on earth. I mean... Hmm. You know, you we, know, we're starting, we're giving that authority into Joshua so he so can he begin, begin taking that leadership role over. I think that's straining the text a little. I mean, well, I mean, then what? I mean, because some of you. Because, because Joshua or Moses was told to invest him, which means convey on him the authority. So mm-hmm. Mo- Moses no longer was the leader. Joshua was then, well, as soon as the investment happened. And, and uh, But he didn't get all the authority. I understand what you're saying. I, I think that strains the text a little bit. But you might be right, and I might be wrong. It's happened more than once today. Just ask Harper. <laughs> more than once that I've been right, right, wrong, on the same subject? <laughs> Well, that's a, that's probably a given. But what else? Do what other principle do we see here? If God doesn't change His mind. Okay, that's good. God doesn't change His mind. 
Moses, God told Moses he wasn't going to go into the promised land. And Moses came back and asked him to be good. And God said, well, go up a mountain, go and see, and I don't want to hear any more about it. Right. And what a spectacular view it is from the top of Mount Nebo. But you know, still it's still not the same, same as going, going in. in. It's it's probably 15 miles or so uh, east of the the northern part of the Dead Sea and the uh, Jordan Valley. And normally it's not clear. Most of the time it's kind of foggy in the mountains. But the day we were there, it was perfectly clear. We we believe we could see the glimmer of the Mediterranean. So we got a glimpse of the of the entire Promised Land. Wow. And I think I think Moses did as well. I I forget that how high Nebo is, um, but it, it puts you up high enough that you can see long distances. Certainly you can see Jerusalem and west of Jerusalem and south into Bethlehem. All of the Dead Sea is right at your right in front of you. And when it's clear you can see north to the Galilee as well. And it's just an unbelievable view. It's it's it gives you chill gave me chills anyway. But I think there's more principles here that we're not uh, we're not getting to. <coughs> I think Moses was concerned for uh, the people after his death. Here he'd been yeah. caring for these people for for forty years, and sometimes to his own detriment. And he asked God to appoint a man that would uh, lead them properly, as a shepherd leads his or cares for his sheep. That's an important statement. You know, when you read the 23rd Psalm, as, as David writes about how a shepherd cares, that's the, that's the heart that Moses wanted to have whoever followed him. I think he knew it was going to be Joshua because he's been grooming him. And, and so he wanted to see, to ensure that, that Joshua would care for the people like, like uh, Moses did. So he asked him to appoint uh, a man like that. It was personal for Moses. This was not some some CEO of a company saying, yeah, I need a good guy to follow me. It was personal. Somebody needed to care for his people. And I think uh, I think that that tells us the shepherd and the caring part tells us that the pastor today. See, I'm trying to bring it back to principles for us today. The, uh, that needs to be the heart of the pastor to care for his people take the weight of his people on his shoulders and care for them like a shepherd does needs to take it personally the people that God entrusts him to we, and where did Moses lead from? he led from the front he was always involved in the action Except when God had him standing on a mountain holding his hands up so everybody could go. He was always involved in the action. And I, I think that's what, what the pastor in today's world needs to be. Involved in the action. Not, not saying to everyone else, you go do it and then come back and report. Need to go alongside the people as they do stuff. Second, I see that the leader needs to prepare and train those who will lead after him. Moses was planning for a long time. He had, he had Joshua with him for 40 years, training him. We see the same picture in Paul and, and Timothy. For years, young Pastor Timothy was uh, Paul's uh, protege. 
And it was only after probably 20 years of serving Paul did Paul say to Timothy, okay, you go to this church and, and uh, take over for a while. You're, you were able to go on your own. And then when Paul was, was ready to be executed, he, he took the, uh, the keys to the uh, Apostle Paul evangelistic ministry and signed them over to Timothy. Because he knew who he was and he trained him all along to be just that guy. And so I think, I think the model that God has shown us both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament of how a church plans for the, the next pastor is to grow them inside and train them inside. And I think more and more churches are doing that now because you can't afford to send a guy away for, for uh, seven years to get a bachelor's degree and a master's degree and, and all of that kind of stuff. Because when they get out, they have too much expense and you can't pay them anymore. And I think the model that Paul and Timothy, that Moses and Joshua provide us, is you grow them in-house. Third, I see that God who appoints leaders, it's God who appoints the leaders to come after us. We, we said it earlier, God's a sovereign God. He orchestrates the event so the right person is brought forward to us for us to choose from. Then follow the process of selecting and anointing them to that position. Moses, as I said earlier, Moses spent 40 years training Joshua. Well, Moses Joshua. had to have known because Caleb was there too. Right. Right. Joshua was his assistant. And so he was yeah, there when the decisions were made. Say that again, Sybil. Wasn't Caleb more of a warrior? One that was really actually involved in fighting the Maybe. Maybe. So, so yeah, but so was Joshua. He w he was the leader. He he led them into battle. Mm -hmm. But during the wilderness wandering, Joshua was with Moses for a lot of that. Remember, a lot of times when when Moses would go up Mount Sinai, um, Joshua would go part way up with him. Um, the other leaders would stay would have to stay back. Joshua could go further up. He couldn't go all the way up because he didn't have the clearance that that Moses had, but he had more clearance than the others. And so he was, God was preparing him that whole time for this role. So I, I think that, that we need to see the heart of, of the pastor. Um, and he needs to train those that come after him and then trust God to appoint the right guy. Questions, comments on that one? Okay, after reading Numbers 30, what have you learned about Hebrew culture in relation to women? Hebrews 30 has uh, the various uh, comments about if a woman who is living on her own without a, man, without a husband or a father, um, and she makes a vow, she's got to pay it. But if she's got a, a father, if she still lives with her father, or she lives with a husband, and she makes a vow, they have the first right of refusal. They can say, no, no, we're not going to do that. So what does that, what does, what does chapter 30 tell us about uh, Hebrew culture in relationship to women? It was definitely a, a man-oriented patriarchal type society. I think that's right. true, but I don't think Roman or uh, Numbers thirty tells you that. Go ahead, Ann. 
but if you, a woman, a woman was, was, if a, if woman, a woman had the authority, the authority of a man, of a man over, over her, she had to, had to defer to him. To him. He, was, he was, he was in, in charge. charge. But, but if she, if she did, did not, not, she could she speak and act for herself. herself. Right. What, what, a woman that was still at home, wasn't yet married and was still at home, or was married and was living with her husband, who was financially responsible? He was. He was. And so she was free to make oaths. And, uh, and if uh, the husband or the father didn't intervene, it would then be mandatory for her to do it. Why is it important that the one who's financially responsible be the one who f makes the final decision? See, if she doesn't have a husband or a father, if she's living on her own and self-sufficient, she's personally responsible, and so there's no out for her. If she has a husband or a father, then they're responsible. What does that tell you? I'm trusting you to be good, Chuck. <laughs> I didn't say a word. <laughs> I think some argue that a father or husband could void an argument or void an oath of a woman is demeaning to the woman. I view it exactly the opposite. Rather than demeaning the woman, I view it as protecting the women. Because... First of all, notice that the woman who doesn't live in her father's house and does not have a husband is still required to make the oath. Why would that woman be required to? She's, she's the, one, the that's one that's financially, financially responsible. responsible. Yeah, arguably she knows what the finances are. She knows where she's right. at financially because she's responsible for it. But arguably in that culture, the daughter or the wife doesn't know that. And so she may make an oath that they can't afford to keep. And so the one that knows that is the one that's responsible. I think God was protecting women, not demeaning women. And, and the family as well. Yeah, absolutely. The person that knows what's in the checkbook should be the one making the decisions. But, but, but we both know what's in the checkbook. Exactly. And, and I don't even spend $5 without her knowing. First of all, she's good at detecting. And second of all, I, I don't ever want to buy stuff that she doesn't know about. I do sometimes, and then I tell her, look, I spent this amount of money, and you can't know about it. And then she knows it's a present for her, and she just has to, has to wait. Yeah, yeah, there you go. I think we need to understand God was protecting women in a very hostile culture. The Hebrew culture wasn't hostile. Where they came out of was all of their surrounding people were hostile to women. The Hebrews weren't. God was actually protecting women through this. But I know lots of people that don't view it that way. They just want to view this, oh, that's demeaning to women. Questions or comments on that one? 
I can see that either way, depending on how the woman is being treated in the home. Well, yeah, it's not it's not a perfect deal, and uh, it depends on how people respond. But all of those laws that God gives depend on how we respond to them. But having come out of a, of a very poor situation, that for me that would have been very demeaning. Right. But not because of that, but because of the way the way the relationship was. Correct. Go ahead, Linda. It also demands that the husband have uh, some form of responsibility for, for his relationship with the Lord. Mm-hmm. Yes. And not just um, making <coughs> rash decisions without consulting God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's not it's not simply this statute. There's lots of other statutes that are involved, but this statute is normally interpreted as being demeaning to women, and I look at it exactly the opposite because I'm trying to look at it from God's heart. Okay, let's go on. Why is Numbers 33 important? Numbers 33 is is Moses is nearing the end of his life and nearing the end of his service. The Hebrews are are nearing the promised land. It's important for the people. Well, I'm not going to answer that question yet. I'm not going to tell you the answer yet. Why is why why is Numbers 33 important? Where where Moses a gives a history. I'm sorry. It's a recap. Right. Why is that important? Because this is a new group of people. Okay. It shows that they turned into 40 places for the 40 years they've been in the wilderness. They need to know where they came from. Not just where they came from, who they are. Who they are. Yeah. It's important for people to understand their own history. The people alive were were children or were not born yet when they left Egypt. Everybody twenty and older has died now in the uh, in the wilderness, and so we just have we have young adults that either left uh, Egypt as kids or they were born on the trip. They needed to know how God brought them out of Egypt and what they did in response to Him bringing them out of Egypt. They need to know their failures in the times that they were obedient. They need they need to know what God's going to do and did do when they obeyed and when they didn't obey because they were being asked to again sign on to the treaty with God. And so they needed to know who God was, who they were. Right now, they were just a bunch of of descendants of Egyptian slaves who had been wandering in the wilderness for 40 plus years. Several times in the Old Testament, we have a retelling of this same story. Because it's important to see where you come from. Both the good and the bad times. We need to remember where we came from. We need to remember the promises God gives us and how he always keeps his promises. By remembering our history and God's faithfulness, we're reminded of who we are And more importantly, we're reminded of who God is. So as Moses is nearing the end, he's again giving them 
a, uh, a recounting of the history, and he'll do it again in the book of Deuteronomy. And he's making sure that they understood what they did right and what they did wrong. But at this point, it's even more important that they understand this because two and a half tribes had, uh, had taken possession of land east of the Jordan. And they wanted to stay there. No, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting but, ahead of myself. But is that, but, is that, but now that you said, said it, it, was that, that ever, ever part, part of what God, God said, said was going to be Israel? Israel? I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't find, find it. It's an interesting discussion when you read what God promised to them, which typically ends at, at the Jordan River. Right. But then God also gave them for a while, possession east of the Jordan. But by the time of Jesus, they didn't they didn't occupy that anymore. Matter of fact, if you look at the at the maps for uh, Joshua, no, I'm sorry, uh, Solomon, David and Solomon, they they under under Solomon they possess the most land that they'll ever possess, and it goes all the way up to the Euphrates in modern day Iraq. Uh, and they had influence even further than that. But they never really had significant tribal boundaries east of the Jordan after very long after the conquest. So did God promise that to them? Not specifically, but he allowed them to stay there as long as they would go with the nine and a half other tribes in and, and take the, the rest of it. The land that God promised included all the way to the Euphrates, um, so most of Syria, uh, Lebanon was part of the promised land and only under Solomon did they possess it all. But it's an interesting, it's interesting to see the maps laying side by side what God promised and what they actually took possession of for a while. And then those go away. You know, they, they slowly migrate back west and and are west of the of the Jordan, and by Jesus' time, that was all Gentile territory east of the Jordan. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, it just surprises me. I wonder why God thought it was okay for them to stay there, since it wasn't what He promised, and He was taking them to the Promised Land. Find that Yep, it is. So I think Numbers 33 ought to encourage us. Because we know we should know our history and know how God promises to, to what He promises to do, and He's always faithful. That's the picture you see as a result of Numbers 33. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay, let's go on to the next one then. Read Deuteronomy 1 6 through 8. What's your takeaway from this passage? Deuteronomy 1 6 through 8. The Lord our God said uh, to us at Horeb, you have stay, stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and, and to all their neighbors in the Arabah. That's the Jordan Valley. Uh, in the hill country and in the lowland, in the Negev and by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. So there's what God's promising to them. See, I have set this land before you. Go and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them and to their offspring after them. So that's the promise God made to them. 
of the land he was giving them. So what's the question? What's your takeaway from it? God gave them that promise. Here, I'm giving you all this land. Go and get it. They didn't take it all. No, they didn't. They were they were, they were disobedient right from the get go. And the place that they left people ultimately became the dividing line between Israel and Judah. The the Canaanites, the worst of them, remained in that uh, Kidron Valley, not Kidron Valley, uh, Jezreel Valley, and was always a thorn in the side of the united monarchy and then became the place where the divided monarchy uh, divided the spoil, the land up. Much, much later, David still has to drive out the Jebusites. They still were not driven out. That's correct. And they never, they never drove out the Philistines. And and had they been obedient when Joshua went into the land, the Philistines were just making landfall into that area coming from Greece. The Philistines are actually Greeks. They they land in that shore there to start new settlements, and they were not powerful at all. Had Joshua led the the, the Hebrews in taking the land like God had had ordained, the the Philistines would not have been the the thorn in their side that they were. David particularly, and uh, Saul, you know, they were plagued by the Philistines the whole time. But we've got two and a half tribes on the east side. For for whatever reason, God allowed them to stay there. Uh, I think it's kind of in keeping with the promise that he gave them the land. Um, uh, it's a broader view of the land, I think. Um, but they, they, God says, look, you guys can stay here. It's good farmland. It's good, good grazing land. You can stay here because you got lots of cattle and stuff. But you're still going to have to go and fight. Even though you got your territory, everybody helped you get your territory. So you're going to have to participate. And you're going to have to cross the Jordan. And you're going to have to help them fight. And then after everybody has won, you get to go back home to your settled land. So God gives... The, it, but, but, go ahead. Do you think it's because that, that God, God told them that when they fought, they had to kill absolutely everyone and that they were not they were not to, to, to take the spoils, so to speak, for themselves because that would become a stumbling block for them. Do you think it was because they had to kill everybody that that's why the land didn't get really conquered because they never could kill everybody? Well, they could have killed everybody had they had they been obedient because God was the one doing all of that. They just weren't obedient. It was easier not to kill them. That's what I mean. Yeah. It wasn't that they couldn't. I don't think it was mentally really disturbing to be killing women and children. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of people that try to make, that try to conflate God's commands to Israel in the taking of, of Canaan as genocide. Because God's saying, hey, go kill all the Canaanites. Why is that not genocide? 
God told him to do it. Yeah, and and he is he is the ultimate judge, right? Right, right. So the question often comes from from uh, Muslims. Well, Allah, God, told us to do it. Why is it different? Because God is God and Allah is. Yeah, exactly right. Now they don't see it that way, and so they have that stumbling block that the church followers of of Jehovah are guilty of genocide, and they're not because they're following their God. It's a tough argument to refute, but we'll we'll see in some of our upcoming stuff as uh, that gets refuted much better. It, was it Frank Turek that said when people say, why did God kill people, and, but they themselves kill people because they are pro-abortionists? Right, yeah, he, he said that on I Sunday. Was a good yeah, he said that on Sunday, that, you know, the, the moral argument that, you know, God is unjust because he kills people, and then when you ask the person that said that, do you believe in abortion? Yes, then how is it not immoral for you to do that? That's a that's a good argument, but just understand that that Muslims love that argument, and they make that argument against the church frequently, and by and large the church does not have a great answer, because we don't study it, we don't get prepared to make that answer, but we will. We have that coming up. It's not the same thing, because. God is God, Allah is not, as Anne said. <laughs> and was it, was it, I, I, can't I can't remember the quote. quote. Something, Something, was it was Frank Turk that said, said if, you if, believe, you believe, if you believe in your whole heart, heart in something, something that's not, not true, true, it's still it's not true. true. It's still not true, that's right, that's right. So God tells the two and a half tribes east of the Jordan, they've got to go fight. And then they all get ready to cross the Jordan and to begin the, the process. They don't do a good job of, of killing them all. Sometimes they, they kill them all, and sometimes they don't. They're not consistent. God then uh, brings the people to a position where they could accomplish the goal and assignment he gave them. So the three, two and a half tribes east of the Jordan, they're prepared Joshua is now named the successor. Moses is dead somewhere on Mount Nebo. And the transition has occurred. God has prepared Israel and given them all the necessary things they need in order to accomplish his goal. They don't accomplish their goal, his goal, because they fail, because they're not obedient. And we see this pattern repeated over and over and over again in Scripture. When we're obedient to what God told us to do, we'll succeed. Now, the definition of success needs to be properly cared for. It doesn't mean butts and bucks. It means something different, and so you got to be careful of that. But when you do what God told you to do the way God told you to do it, when God told you to do it, then it will succeed in accomplishing the goal God gave you. If you're Israel and he tells you to cross the river and kill all the Canaanites, if you're obedient to do that, the world that, that the Jews lived in after that would have been much different than the world that they actually lived in. Well, if they had succeeded, there might not have been a Babylonian and Syrian captivity. Correct. And 
this is a, is kind of a rhetorical question because I know that it was always God's plan for that to happen, but that they didn't obey. Would there have been Jesus the Messiah if they had obeyed? Would yeah, the, the kingdom have these these if questions are really hard to to narrow down. But had Israel obeyed and wiped out the Canaanites, they would have been in a much different position. And when the Messiah came, they probably would have accepted the Messiah, and then there would be no salvation for anyone. And so, of course, that couldn't happen because God always planned for Jesus to die on the cross. And he always planned to, to choose us. That makes no sense to me. That's not logical. But I think in a linear fashion inside of time and space, God is outside of time and space and he knows all the pieces and he knows the whole, the whole board. I see a little small piece of the board. Mm-hmm. But it's fun sometimes to sit and think about the what ifs. Yeah, well, yeah, I already, already, already have a headache, headache, so I figured I'd just, you know, just help it a little bit. <laughs> the, the headache or the what if? Well, I, would, I wasn't, wasn't going to give myself a headache because I already had one. I don't know what I was, what I was thinking. Well, Harper is good at the what ifs. Harper, Harper does the what ifs all day long. Yeah. Drives me cuckoo. Okay, let, let me go ahead. Caitlin used to play that game with me, and one day I just said to her, because God said so. Yeah, exactly. And she's shocked. Well, Caitlin's response to Harper when she asks questions like that is, ask a better question. <laughs> oh, she got that from her father. <laughs> okay, let's, uh, let's do one more. And uh, let's go, well, just go with the next one. Read Deuteronomy, no, let me go to the next one, because that's too much. Uh, You're going to the Shema? Yes, I'm going to do the Shema. Why is that not working? Read Deuteronomy, no. The Shema is six. Yeah, I know, but I, I'm, my 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 pages are out of order on me. Here we go. Um, Deuteronomy, read Deuteronomy six one through nine. Why is this passage so important for the Jews? And the passage is now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, O Israel, hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you, that, uh, you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. That had to be sticky. Oh, I, that's what's happened. I didn't put the I didn't put the the rest of the verses in there. It that's says, what 
Hear, O Israel, Israel, the Lord our God, God, the Lord is one. one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall keep them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gate. Okay, why is that so important? I know I talk about the Shema all the time, and sometimes I even do part of it in Hebrew, but I don't have the capacity tonight. So why is this important to the Hebrews? The same reason it's important for us, we need to teach our children and grandchildren. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Moses was commanded to teach the commandments, statutes, and rules so that Israel would fear, read, worship, be in awe of the Lord. The result is of doing that is longer lives and that things will go well for them in, uh, in the promised land. Moses then moves, that's, that's what we read in verses 1 through 3, then he moves on to the Shema. God was reinforcing the principle that the most important thing for Israel is to have a proper relationship with God. The kings and priests in Israel forgot that. The prophets were sent to teach that, but they forgot that. By the time of the Babylonian captivity, the end of the captivity, focus was no longer on a relationship with God. Focus was on obedience to the law as augmented by the Pharisees. And so they began to worship the law and not the lawgiver. At no time really in Israel's history did they have a proper relationship with God. And just now, just in the last couple of years, modern non-Christian Jews are starting to see that. They're starting to write that. That we didn't we didn't respond as God said, we responded to the way some some priests and prophets and uh, um, rabbis taught, but not consistent with the scripture. Who has been saying that? There, there, there are there's a, a growing group of Jewish rabbis that have been focusing on on studying the scripture, not studying the rabbis' writing of scripture. And they're concluding, God didn't tell us that it's all about road obedience. God told us it's about a relationship with him. And they point to the Shema and other things like that. That they're to, they're cool. to, to worship him with their entire hearts, their entire lives, everything that they are. Jesus would then augment that statement when he would quote it and not just say everything that you are, but your mind has to be included in that. And so there's a growing group of rabbis that are non-Christians. They don't believe in, in, uh, in Jesus, but they're seeing the Old Testament in a different light. And they're, they're, being, they're being hounded by the, by the uh, traditional um, Jews, the Hasidic Jews and the Orthodox Jews. They're being hounded by them as, as not being good students, but they're coming to the right conclusions. I believe God is preparing them to be a voice in the tribulation. 
That is really cool. Yeah, it is. First time I read a, a rabbi write that, I thought, wow, this is different. This has got to be a, a messianic rabbi. And he's not. I think he will be. I mean, that's the only conclusion you can ultimately make. Is you ultimately get to Jesus when you when you follow the New, the Old Testament, you ultimately get to Jesus. So clearly, the Shema was for Israel, but the principles, as uh, Sybil said earlier, the principles are true for us as well. We're called to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our souls, and with all our might, and as Jesus said, with all our minds. Which is why I push you to think, and why I try to ask questions that make you think. And not just give you easy stuff. No pablum from this kid. Although I loved pablum as a kid. <laughs> but that's what makes you a good teacher. Well, thank you. But that, I mean, literally, literally, that's what we were taught. taught that we, that must, we must make students, students think. think. We must we make, ask questions that make right. them think. Right. That's, that's what's important. Is that you think. Any questions? During my cohort this morning with uh, my two pastor buddies, um, I kind of jumped on them with two feet, kind of forcefully. And after after probably ten minutes, Eric said to me, "You know what? You're right. We haven't been doing this right." I said, "I don't need to be right. I just we just have the equity with each other that we can call each other out, and and uh, it's it's kind of encouraging when you can do that." Thank you for watching or listening to this teaching on demand from Friendship Grace Brethren Church. Please consider sending us an email at info at friendshipgracebrethren.com to let us know how this teaching may have helped you. Please also consider joining us in person at Friendship Grace Brethren Church, located at 10251 Metro Parkway, Suite 116, Fort Myers, Florida, just south of the intersection of Metro and Colonial Boulevard. Sunday school begins at 9 and worship service at 10 a.m. We look forward to seeing you in person at Friendship Grace Brethren Church.